to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Welcome to episode 98 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Ryan Schultz. Ryan is the first 15 head coach at ACGS in Brisbane, better known as Churchy, who compete in the GPS competition. He's coached extensively in and around Brisbane, having had roles with St. Patrick's College, Gregory Terrace, Brothers Rugby Club, and the Queensland Reds U18 team as head coach. And it's a pleasure to have him on the show. So welcome, Ryan. Thanks, Andy. And thanks for having me. Very excited to be uh, having a discussion about rugby on your awesome podcast. Oh, thanks, mate. Yeah, no, it's uh, good to connect. And, you know, we we're, we're talking off air there about some uh, a few uh, guests that we've had on the pod, that I've had on the pod before that you, you've uh, had some a few things to do. So um, good, to, good to chat and good to talk things uh, Brisbane rugby, it's the, it's the epicenter of rugby in Australia um, with the, the Reds winning the Super Rugby title. So uh, many New South Wales people will be disappointed in that, but uh, that's, that's the way she goes. Um, what's, your, what's your backstory? You grew, you grew up in Brisbane. You, you, when did you start playing? What was your, what was your club story and, and so on? Yeah, so I'm a Brizzy boy, um, born and raised. Uh, started playing rugby in year five when I attended St. Pat's at Shorncliffe, um, which is, tends to be the story for a lot of rugby players. They go to a private school and get introduced to rugby. Um, fell in love with it. Kept playing throughout. Um, left school and transitioned into the North Rugby Club. Um, former Wobbly great Chris Roach was uh, leading leading the programs there at that point in time and put a lot of investment in getting um, players out of schools and, and building the Colts program and um, building the first grade program there. So um, we had a really good group go through um, that period into Colts into first grade. Um, uh, with limited success, we, we had um, probably culminated in a, a really good team where we won seven from seven at the start of the season and then... Um, a player drained to representative footy and injury sort of took toll and we didn't win a game for the rest of the season. But um, <laughs> you know, from that team, we had Jesse Mogg, who's, who's obviously playing for the Wallabies yeah. in France. Um, again, a uh, player called Blair Connor, who ended up playing for Bordeaux in the top 14 for 10 years. Right. Ida Vea went to the Brumbies. Michael Bond's playing in Japan now. Um, so it was a quality team. And, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't give it up for anything. Um but post that season, I ended up transitioning over to Brothers uh, and played you know, the rest of a well, couple of years at, at Brothers. And my first year there, we we made the um, first grade grand final. So it was awesome going from um, having limited to success to playing a grand final. Um, but yeah, then sort of had a one-off stint down in Randwick for a little bit and you know, played a few little regional rep teams and that sort of stuff. But always aspired to be better than I was um, yeah. and I think I'm still chasing that sort of in the coaching game now yeah yeah of course I think I think that's uh, the story for many of us mate <laughs> yeah, um, yeah yeah cool did you uh, so what about those first coaching experiences what what were those like how'd you how'd you get roped into it and what was that uh, those first few experiences like 
it's probably same like a lot of rugby people. They go back to where they um, started. And I, I started the coaching, I think it was the 14 seats, um, which was probably one of the most lowest teams at St. Pat's um, yeah. with a mate and sort of just kept in the game from there. Um, even when I was playing yeah, footy, I was always coaching. Um, yeah. I actually started out uh, at St. Pat's a couple of years after I graduated in a athlete development role, just sort of running the gym and you know, being a, a sports assistant, you know, getting kits together and helping out the um, director of sport there. And that actually progressed you know, into different roles yeah, up until where I am now. But being able to coach rugby, cricket, track and field uh, throughout the year was, yeah, it was an awesome, awesome footing for me. Yeah, for sure. That's like living the dream, really. <laughs> yeah, well, it was at that stage, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And what uh, what were those first kind of learnings like when you when you first that first year? What were some of the things you were like? Okay, um, I'm I'm good at this. Maybe I'm you know a little underprepared in these areas. No, I think like everyone, uh, you you start out coaching like you were coach. Um, so I kind of look back and yeah. Don't know what I was thinking, um, but that's that's all I knew back then. I actually, I actually took on the the first of Danielson Pats when I was, I think it was around twenty two. Um, okay, and I actually like that's like a it's a real critical turning point in in my coaching. Like I look back on that, um, yeah, it, it, it was negative how I was coaching, but it's, it motivates me now to um, you know ensure that I'm always learning and growing and um, trying to bring the best out of people. I think. Yeah, when you're young and naive, you you coach on emotion. Um, you're more outcome focused rather yeah. than the actual process. And yeah, you know, we, we had a pretty good group that year. And I actually, I, I look back and I feel really sorry for how I uh, <laughs> how I coach those young fellows. Um, but as I said, it's all it's all it's all learning. And, and I yeah, I utilise that um, yeah you know, to make sure that I I'm trying to be better all the time. Yeah. No, I think. Um... I'm exactly the same. Uh, my yeah. first couple of years, um, for sure. And I think uh, D- Dave Rennie uh, said it best when he was talking about Quade Cooper. He's referring to him as uh, he was a bit young and dumb uh, in yeah. in the early years. I think uh, that yeah. can uh, that can be uh, expanded to coaches as well. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah well, that's that's how you grow, and that's that's the good stuff about it. And you know, you've you've had a bunch of. Uh, coaching experience since then and you know over a period of 10 years can you give a bit of a brief summary of the roles and how that's helped you grow as a coach moving forward yeah so as i mentioned i started at st pat's um you know, getting a athlete development program up and running so we had a, a little gym in a you know, back room of the pool area that we um started a strength conditioning program in, and um from that role it sort of progressed into taking some coordinator roles with with cricket and rugby um, and then coaching a team in those sports every year. And then that progressed into some sports administration and I ended up in a role there called um, the Sports Development and Performance Coordinator. So I basically tried to oversee the development and performance of you know, all the sporting programs. Um, so looking at coach development, you know, the, the alignment of philosophies in each sport um, and then also tying in the athlete development program into into real sports. So that was actually... Yeah, a, cool a really cool um, role, but it gave me the opportunity to you know, firstly develop programs, um, you know, work on coach development in, in you know, a multitude of sports, um, implement that into training um, structures and um, you know, regimes and that sort of stuff. Um, 
But also then, you know, as I said, like coaching. So you know, I was coaching cricket. You'd be coaching rugby. You'd be coaching every afternoon of the week. Um, you know, I got into the junior representative pathway through the, you know, the school representative um, opportunities. So you know, you'd be coaching on the 12 regional teams, on the 15 regional teams, getting into the Reds pathway. So um, I think that the, the awesome part of the early part yeah, of my journey was I was just coaching. Um, mm, I was able yeah. to develop things, try things out that didn't work, um, work with people, manage people, um, you know, all trying to get the best out of you know, individuals of the team, but then also trying to generate team performance as well. So I'm sure I did um, many of the things wrong, um, but also you know, learn a, a whole heap that I, you know, I, I still use today in my coaching um yeah in all aspects of 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 a a program yeah yeah i think uh, i was just listening to you talk about that and it reminded me of andy friend when he was on the on the podcast and he he referred to it as just time in the saddle and just how when you have those opportunities and you know that because you know we were talking a little bit about you know, being a dad and family life and all that kind of stuff and how you, you can't always have those opportunities. But when you get them, you just got to pack them yeah. in and you really got to take advantage of that. And I I love that coaching those different kind of age levels and representative teams and social teams and kids teams. And it lets me know that there's some, like there's some strands across it that like no matter what the team is, you got to do certain things and you know, yeah. other teams, uh, you just can't you can't touch that, or you have to address that. Um, so I, I find that really beneficial. Yeah, and that's I think the beauty of coaching. There's some there's some consistent things that you need to do well. Um, mm. You know, and, and things that I do in cricket um, worked in rugby and vice versa. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and more around that the people side of it in terms yeah. of the relationships you build, how you communicate and. Um, yeah, how you try to even from like the skill acquisition side, how you design practices to you know, develop the skills of the player and that sort of stuff. It's um, yeah. Yeah, there's certainly some crossover consistency throughout coaching, that's for sure. Yeah, agree. And yeah, that's what I was. Uh, that's what I was leaning towards. Like, you know, every program should have an element of fun. Uh, it should have an element of camaraderie, and you should be able to articulate your ideas really well and be able to plan a session that touches in on the the most recent coaching science uh not not yeah. the kind of you know stuff that we would have started coaching with so yeah yeah, yeah. no no great point all right you've you've just uh you've just wrapped up your first season uh with the first 15 at churchy um what before we get into that role what, what's a bit of backstory on on churchy it's got a, a storied history in terms of you know rugby in in australia but also you know some wallabies uh, that have come out of there what what's the uh, what's the story of that school obviously a very proud and uh school with a you know, extensive history um Churchy was formed in 1912 and doing a little bit of research as I commenced i think you know, the first involvement of rugby was back in 1918. Yeah, crazy when you think about it, over yeah. 100 years ago. And I think they first formally got into schools competition because rugby league was back big back then um, mm. in around 1920. Unfortunately. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then from uh, 1938 to, to now, we've won um, 18 premierships. So yeah, a real extent, extensive history but also there's yeah a proud successful one there as well mm. um 
And I think, uh, you know, I was actually doing a little uh, activity this year for our, our first where we're just you know, doing some jersey cards for the change rooms for our um, home games and looking at past players that played in um, positions. Um, right, awesome. And it's two that really stuck out, stuck out to me that um, probably the players uh, weren't aware of um, or knew who they were, but... First one was Lloyd McDermott, so right, he's yeah. a, an old boy at school. Um, yeah. Obviously, what he did for Indigenous um, mm. people within rugby and how he grew the game and promoted the game um, through those communities, yeah, is just unreal. Um, mm. Then also Bob Templeton as well, so a yeah. famous uh, cool. Australian coach. Um, and our best of Ferris Ward is actually the Bob Templeton medal. Yeah, so having two individuals like that a part of the history is, is pretty cool. But then most recently, uh, 2014 and 15, they won back-to-back premierships, and those teams were were stacked. Massive. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you had the likes of um, Caelan Ponga, Jaden Sewer, Harry Hawkins, Angus Scott Young, Liam Wright, um, the list, list go on, Brodie Croft. But then before that, you had David Pocott, uh, yeah. Quade Cooper. Uh, and then even before that, you had Tim Walsh, who, you know, who's obviously yeah. The, yeah. the coach of um, Australian Sevens now and, Gold, gold medal winning coach so yeah it's a really proud history and an extensive one and probably not just the performance side but participation as well we have close to six or seven hundred students play rugby every year mm. probably up there with you know, the, the top three programs in terms of participation as well so it's an awesome community and yeah as I said like a real extensive history a proud history as well yeah oh, it sounds amazing and just some of the names there, uh, you know, and, and, and that's that's cool about the school as well that, you know, it's not just about, okay, who can be a wallaby, but who who's going to who's gonna have rugby as part of their connection to the school uh, for the, yeah. you know, four, five, six years that they're, that they're going to spend there. And that's that can't be underestimated as well. Cool. And um, so how'd, that, how'd your first season go? What were some of the, the challenges and, and takeaways uh, for you uh, from a coaching perspective and, and how, are you, how are you applying that in terms of planning for, for uh, next year? Um, yeah, there's was, there was many challenges. Uh, firstly, I didn't commence until um, Term 2. Um, right. So the program was up and running until Term 1. So I basically commenced the week of... Um, the Easter camp. So in terms of this year's group, yeah, they went through turn one, you know, with a bit of an unknown on, of what mm. the year would look like. So that was a bit, of, a bit of a constraint in terms of, um, you know, you're thrown into the deep end, got to make relationships and uh, keep the ball rolling pretty quickly. Um, and then the other one was COVID. We, we unfortunately got to round three. We were literally yeah. hopping on a, a bus to go up to Ipswich to play and um, a lockdown was called. So we all went home and uh, bunked it up for the next four weeks. And the, yeah, the com- competition was basically put on hold for four weeks. So out of a, a nine-round competition, some teams only played four competition games, like ourselves, and then some yeah. teams played five. So yeah, that was a big, um, a big challenge, you know, especially mm. with uh, you know the, the year twelve players and students of, yeah. of the group. You know, that uncertainty of whether they're going to get back on the field and. Um, trying to keep the team together. Um, there's many challenges around that. Um, but we actually had a really good win in our first game, so we're on a bit of a high. So having four weeks off sort of was a challenge. No to, yeah, 
But in saying that, like in terms of things we uh, implemented and how the team performs, um, there's a lot of things will roll over into next year. Uh, one of the big things I um, asked the group when I commenced was what they wanted to get out of the year and you know, what some of the challenges they had in previous years. And one thing they'd really struggled with was being able to beat some of the top three schools, um, some of the, the bigger, uh, well-known, respected oppositions. And we'll able actually to beat two out of three of them this year, one in our last trial and then one in the first game. And then our mm. first game back after the COVID break was uh, against uh, Nudgy College, who was probably the best team in the competition this year. Um, and we had a real competitive game against them, but um, they were probably just a bit too good on the day. Uh, but in saying that, you know, the, the work um, the, the leaders in the U12 cohort did in terms of getting those wins, hopefully we'll have big influence on what we can roll into mm. next year in terms of confidence and belief, not from a first of being perspective, but also from a, a whole school program perspective as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, with that lockdown right in the middle of the season, how, how did you go about managing, you know, the players and their their emotions and their expectations uh, around that time? What what kind of resources did you use? What 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 help from the school did you get for for those kind of those kind of important things? Yeah, I guess we we were pretty um, focused on not concentrating on it too much. Like the reality yeah. is, everyone had to go down, stay at home. Um, so we, we kept we kept constant communication. We didn't overdo it. You know, we got the boys into their gym programs, and yeah, you know, we weren't stressing. They had to do it, or you know, we, we didn't mm. want them to you know, send pictures or anything like that. It's sort of more around, um, yeah, just keeping in the communication, making sure that they're all, um, yeah, healthy of mind, but also, you know, keeping healthy physically as well. Um, and yeah, just made sure that there's some consistent communication so it didn't go the other way where they just yeah, put their put the tools down and that was it. Luck, luckily, the the lockdown was a short one, so yeah. I think it was within two weeks we're kind of back in the school and able to start some kind of training. So there wasn't a um, it wasn't a, a huge period off, uh, and I think if, if it did go a little bit longer, obviously it would have eaten into the season anymore, and that it could have become a bit more of a challenge then. But yeah, I think not not overdoing it, not stressing mm. that we had to you know keep on top of things, just sort of live, letting the guys. Do their own thing, keep fit, um, and 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 yeah, they were pretty good in terms of you know always sending pictures of themselves doing gym and all that. So like the boys sort of led led that themselves, and I think that allowed us when we did start back up, you know, they were really keen to get back going rather than having yeah been tried to jam it down their throats for the last couple of weeks sort of thing. No, it's a good approach and, you know, they've got enough stress. Uh, there would have been academic yeah. stress as well and, you know, who, who knows what else. Uh, so, yeah, it sounds like you, you nailed it. Um, well, changing tact a little bit, you, you recently presented at the uh, University of Queensland Sports Coaching SIG uh, with former podcast guest Johnny McMurtry where you were, you were discussing uh, lead, player leadership groups. What was uh, yep. was a bit of a summary on your presentation, and and what are some of the the key points that you feel that that coaches could apply from 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 this? Yeah, this is something I'm really passionate about. Um, I think it probably stems from you know the the want and need to create a player centred environment, um, ensuring that it's not coach led, that players have a say, there's a bit of autonomy there, and they can take ownership for their development and performance. And I guess why I'm so interested in it is because um, yeah, 
I, I really think it's a generational thing that young men these days don't get the opportunity to actually experience leadership. Um, you know, they're, they're not out and about like we probably were back in the day, yeah. you know, riding around the neighbourhoods, playing games, all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's obviously their life is very technology heavy now. Um, mm. The interactions and you know, the, the way they have to, to manage and, and deal with people is totally different to what, um, yeah, past generations have had to experience. Um, so my learnings is, is that it's not a leadership's not a natural thing you know, for anyone, but especially mm. for, for these young um, men coming through school and, and even into the club scene as well. So as much as you want to give players autonomy and give them ownership, um, it, it becomes quite challenging to to get a really strong player led environment. So. Um, I linked up with Johnny, uh, who's an absolute legend and you know, guru on, on a lot of things, but basically just collaborated with him you know, when I started at, at Churchy, more on using his knowledge to, to you know, pick out academic work that I could utilise um, in, in my program, but then also just use him as a sounding board to you know, throw ideas at and you know, hopefully formalise a, a few little things that I could utilise. And one of the things we, we landed on was the leadership group, so how, how I work with them and then how we can um, you know, utilise them to get that player-led environment uh, efficient, but then also you know, get them taking ownership of their behaviours and standards and all that mm-hmm. that goes towards you know, a good program. I guess what we presented on was what I'd done this year, um, which was nothing... Crazy, but then we utilised that to start a discussion, um, and then hopefully formalise you know, a better program for next year. And I guess the the three main things I, I took away from it, and not just learnt, but also validated from what I probably was already doing, uh, but just formalised it a little bit. The first thing was utilising four main categories for sports leadership, and those four categories basically, um, you know, task. So a task leader being you know, someone that can lead the technical, technical part of, of our program. Um, motivational, so someone who's good at encouraging, you know, influencing others, bringing the best out of each other. Um, the social side of it, so team culture, the connections with the team. And then the last one, um, which is something I, I took a, a lot out, the, the last in this framework before was um, external. So it was more around you know, dealing with external stakeholders and that sort of stuff. Um, but in talking to some to the um, the experts you know, in the presentation was that's actually probably more suitable to be um, a standards leader around the one percenters who's driving that training, that work ethic you know, in the gym on the field. So using tasks, motivational, social, and, and standards as a as a framework to identify leaders, but then also to give roles to. The next challenge is finding the right people. So again, the right people in the boat and using social network analysis, which is basically um, analyzing group dynamics, investigating the social structures of your group, using that framework to, to identify the right people. And I guess what that process looks like is, is developing a survey with some questionnaires around those four groups and get individuals to identify others in the group um, mm. who might suit them and give them a bit of a rating. Uh, but then they also do it on themselves. So I think it's important for, for people to identify the leaders, but then also for you to know whether 
you they see themselves as leaders because you know Andy might get votes in in being the task leader and, and you might want him to be in the leadership group, but yeah, you don't want to be a leader. So that might be able to start a conversation where you can sit him down and yeah, you know, maybe not so much convince him, mm. but give him the information that people see him as leaders, and then that might be the point of difference of him buying yeah. into your yeah, your program or not. I'd um, uh, I'd I'd be social, by the way. You'd be uh, social. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess like. In terms of how I want to formalise the identification process this year, is yeah, formalise a survey where we get that information, but also hold a, a nomination process as well, mm. where you know, same thing, formalising some question survey around um, yeah, those frameworks. Yeah, they can put forward on, on how they want to lead and why they want to lead and what they might bring. Um, and then actually, I want to sit down with each of them and interview them. So, I'm not quite sure if I. I'll call it interview because it might be a little bit more too stressful. Yeah. But yeah, have a discussion around that so then I I can get a gauge on where they're at also. Um, yeah. So hopefully after that you get a good idea of who the team sees as leaders, who you see as leaders. Um, but then you've had some communication and dialogue on um, yeah who you who who's the right fit and then formalise a, a leadership group to then. Yeah, assist with the the planning and implementation of the 2022 season. And there's a, there's a framework, uh, a leadership framework, um, the five R's, which is basically readying, reflecting, representing, realising and reviewing. So I know I'm waffling on here, but I, I love this it's stuff. It's all good. Um, well, well, let me jump yeah. in. Let me jump in one second. Um, yeah. this, this, as you're saying that, it reminds me of Ray McLean, the guru of uh, leadership groups, uh, coined the phrase, I believe. But I, I love how it's it, it's it's actually more intricate than than what I've read before. It's you're you're going through a thorough process. It's it's a hundred percent democratic, and I love the the concept of actually assessing the group from two different points of view from the player themselves and the, and the playing group. What, what's this, uh, the social network analysis? Can you talk a little bit about more, more about that? Is that something you've coined or is that a more formal No, uh, so that, that's, a, yeah, that's an academic term. Um, right. It's basically like some of the studies I'll be going to are pretty in-depth and, and yeah, provide leaders a really in-depth look at yeah, who communicates with who, the relationships mm. within the group, and, and and it sort of brings out trends on who people sees as, um, as leaders and yeah, who's most popular and that sort of stuff. Um, mm. But I guess basically that little framework provides you, you know, the opportunity to um, identify those key people, so how others perceive others, and then the group dynamics between mm. it as well. So you might get someone who sees himself as a leader, um, but once we can do the survey. <laughs> No one else does. It's not happening. Um, so yeah. it's sort of yeah, highlighting and diving into those dynamics of the group. Mm. Um, and I mean, as I said, like oh, you'd just be scraping the service in the sim- simple ways that I'll be looking um, to implement. Yeah. But the theory behind it you know, makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And you know, we've all been in those those teams, right? Where it's we've had teams where it's like a great leadership group and teams where it's a not so great yeah. one or one that is like somewhere in the middle and it's such an important important part of it um do you want to jump back into the five r's there and 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 continue with that yeah. i think there's some good stuff there yeah. 
Yeah, so the, the five R's is it's basically, and the thing I've learned the most out of it, it's probably like, it's what a lot of people are probably already doing or, you know, hopefully some of the listeners are already doing, but it just provides a framework and sort of formalises the steps and processes. Um, so hopefully once I've got a, a gun leadership group ready to go for 2022, um, you know, I, I can bring them into the, the, the planning process, but then also educate them what, you know, I want to do with the program and what I see is important. Um, but basically those five R's, as I said, sort of provides a framework around the first one's like readying. So edu- educating the group on um, the why. So the we, the team, why is it important? Um, mm-hmm. So having that team first mentality and sort of educating the group and providing them that um, that knowledge first. The next one's reflecting. Uh, and this is where the players can start to be brought in and, and start taking the lead. So actually developing who we are, what we already are and, and what our history is and, and um, yeah, who we are as a, as a collective right now. Um, but probably the next important step is that representing. So that's more around who do we want to be, what do we want to achieve, so your goal setting, your core behaviours, your values and all that sort of stuff and, and that's something that's led um, by the players. The next one's realising, so walking the walk. So that's probably going to be a little bit further into mm. your program where you're, you're day in, day out training, um, you're utilising that representing phase to um, yeah, highlight important behaviours, highlight people that are doing it well, where are we mm. at? Um, and then the last yeah, one's that cool. reviewing. So it's just that constant review and discussion. Uh, and you might amend because the reality is we'll, we'll have a, a three-term season, which is basically eight months. So um, you might not get it right. You might have different personnel come in and out of the program. So if, you, if you're consistently reviewing it, you know, there might be development in, in what you've um, yeah, reflected and represented upon. I think um, that last part's the crucial part. Um, I think if you're trying to drive standards and drive behaviours uh, in a certain direction, there has to be that that full 360 process and, and finishing with the review and having some conversations with players that maybe they've never had before and maybe that they're uncomfortable about. And, and sometimes that's not even the coach who's having those conversations. It's fellow players um, calling them up and saying, look, hey, here's, here's where we're at right now and here's where we need to be. And that also galvanizes the group uh, as well, I feel. So um, yeah. that, that review process, how, how, do you, how would you run that uh, in a – in say a weekly cycle or in an off-season uh, kind of cycle, yeah, and that's what yeah, and that's what I think. Like this framework in terms of those those leadership roles, and then the framework of the of the leadership program provides an opportunity just for communication, and, that, and that's probably one of my motivations is to try to give the individuals who might be invited into a leadership group or who are seen as leaders in the group the, the opportunity to actually lead and be good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, or be effective at it, I guess. So if they if they have an idea of what their leadership role is, what some of the the um, their key tasks are, um, what the collective behaviours and what we're trying to achieve, um, communication becomes pretty easy then. And you know you can develop easier action plans for them to weekly go out and execute. You can then come back and sit down and review them. Then you can formalise again for the following week. And it just gives you know, a real clarity on um, what they should be doing, um, mm. how they're doing it, um, and then how we can continue to grow and get get better at it as well. And hopefully, as, as a coach, they, I'm not the guy always driving it. 
it'll take a bit of time, but you know, the players start taking a bit of ownership. They start to give a bit of confidence, and you might have you know, four to six guys in your leadership group, and then you've got four ex, four to six extra coaches on the ground um, doing some of your legwork, um, yeah. which hopefully will make my role easier as well. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's that's the good stuff about coaching. When that stuff starts kicking in, you're like, okay, yeah. it's firing now. We're we're moving in the right direction uh, really quickly. Cool. Awesome. And, um, you know, one of the other areas you're really interested in is using data to ensure uh, training methodology and player development, uh, especially in terms of the the competition you're playing in and the style of play. You've been working with a couple of analysts, um, one I'm familiar with on Twitter. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about that and what what the process is and how how coaches could explore that? Yeah, so I I love... And somehow, hopefully, I don't waffle on too much in this uh, question as well. But um, <laughs> good. You know, I see data as like the the better informed you are about a subject, whether you know mm. whether it's rugby or, or whatever, um, the better decisions, the better discussions you can you can mm. ha- have about it. Uh, but I also are really wary of like I don't think data should drive decisions and you know be the last point of call in terms of why you do things. I think like that coaching instinct and your coaching philosophy, you know, should, mm. should be the main influencer, the main driver. But data can ensure that yeah, yeah, you are making better decisions, and also adding to innovation of your of your coaching instinct and philosophy as well. So the two main guys that I've done a lot of work with, firstly Brendan Shields from Rugby Ecology. I just said I think mm. he's the guy big on Twitter. He's got his own. Um, platform that dives into the efficiency of, of rugby teams. And it's actually quite a unique model that I, you know, in dealing with him and, and uh, forming a pretty strong relationship, you know, you can really start to look at the game in different ways and, and question mm. you know, your own team's performance and, and how it can and get better. So basically his efficient, efficiency rating is, is based on zonal uh, gains. So if you're starting possession in one zone, whether you get uh, go to the next one, whether you maintain possession or lose possession. And it's obviously not as simple as that. There's a lot else that goes into it. Um, Mm. But from that, it provides a rating of efficiency of your play. So you can can basically dive into possessions of the ball in different um, zones and look how efficient a team is and isn't. And, I mean, you can go into into the the delves of it, but... Uh, what I get out of it is that questioning of um, yeah how efficient your team is. So some of the big trends this year and some of the, the places where teams come unstuck are like your defensive um, C-zone, like so from your defensive 22 to 50 metre, the efficiency mm. of set piece getting out of that zone. So at times this year, our um, line-out positions in that zone became quite poor in terms of our exit rate. Um, when it was effective, it had correlation with performance um, will mm. playing well so you can sort of utilize that and look firstly at how's your line out uh, winning ball uh, and then what do you obviously do from that to get out of that zone and and be efficient another interesting thing is typically as well in, in your green zone so from that attacking 22 uh, to your uh, to the halfway is going multiple phases so you know more than three plus phases teams efficiency tend to drop so same thing on that is that if we're playing heaps of footy in that zone uh, and statistically you know don't get a lot of pay for it so what else might be the option um yeah 
and that that ties into you know, I, I love the, the tactical kicking side of um, mm. footy and where it's going at the moment. So, can you do things a little bit differently there after you've had a crack to then put you know, pressure on the opposition? Because um, typically, as well, in your attacking zones, scrum line out uh, the better teams that have better set piece. You know, they're quite efficient on first and second phase from line out. Mm. So if that's all scrum, so if that's you, how can you generate those possessions more often and and stay consistently efficient from them? So yeah, it sort of it really questions yeah your game model and the reality is is when you when you are more efficient with the ball in in specific zones, uh, it, it leads to better performance. Um, so. It's really, really interesting, and I'm actually catching up with him this week to get the end of the season report. So I, I can't wait for that. Yeah, anticipation of that is uh, is immense, which I'm looking forward to. The other, the other one, I other great guy I work with is a guy called Steve Chapman. So he'd be a bit of an unknown to um, everyone, but I got him involved in the program at Gregory Terrace when I was there, and it's more basically like raw data, so stats of the game around. Mm. Um, you know, rucks, possessions in each zone, kicks in general play, um, you know, kick to ruck ratios, the ruck to phase ratios, gain line, all that sort of stuff. And I guess what he's done in terms of the, the data he's generated, he's basically looked at a whole competition each year. Uh, and then from that, you can sort of look at what the better teams do really, really well. But then also um, he breaks it down into per team. So you can get a real clear demo, you know, demographic of how, of how a team plays or, you know, what's their strengths and weaknesses and that sort of stuff. Um, so same again, you sort of, you get a good idea of um, how coaches coach, how teams perform. It's always going to be uh, cyclical in a way because, you know, people will leave the program and come in the program. But those competition averages have, have, have stayed pretty consistent over the last three years. And looking at the top three teams that I guess everyone wants to be a part of, like the key KPI, you know, KPI, key performance indicators have been around high percentages of set-piece, um, so winning your set-piece ball and having a good set-piece platform, lower kick-to-ruck ratio. So that's a really interesting one, mm. especially in the school competition because I don't see the GPS competition, you know, there's not a lot of tactical kicking going on. So the yeah, lower kick-to-ruck ratios the better teams have had, and, and that can be player-based as well. So those teams usually have the player better game managers, but it's it, same thing. Can that be coached and can that be influenced? And should Attacking it be as well moving forward? Yeah, like yeah. Your, your role yeah. is to develop players. So, you know, yeah. that, that also yeah. has to come into it. Yeah. Um, attacking 22-meter conversion. So, you know, like green zone and attack, you know, the high percentages you have there correlates to, to winning footy games. And it's actually really interesting this year is um, uh, we, we were up there in the top three, but some teams were down around yeah four percent. So four mm. percent of their um, possessions they're turning into points in that zone, which is incredibly low. And that and that sort of goes back on why I love data because you know if you're looking at the important influences on performance, um, but then also if you're good or bad at it, how does that reflect your training practice? Oh, hundred um, percent. Yeah. So if you're attacking twenty-two meter conversion is um, is critical then you know, how often are you working on that and, and what is your philosophy in that zone? Uh, do the players know it? Are they good at it? Because the reality is you look at it, it's probably, it's probably not a big part of the game that's um, done a lot of the training. It's probably more 
phase shape, you know, set piece strike, that sort of stuff. Where if you can become highly effective in that zone, you're giving yourself more opportunity to score points, obviously. Yeah. Um, I think the same could be said about what, turno- turnover ball as well. Like when you when you yeah. go from defence to attack, um, yeah. how how often that, that do you leads, train yeah. it? I'm reading your mind. Yeah, you are. Mate. <laughs> great, great minds think alike. Perfect. Um, yeah, one one of the the stats that Steve looked at this year, um, off the, off his own bat, which is you know, something that he came up with himself, was probably not rucks turnover, but he was looking at that mm. rucks turnover per team. Um, mm. How many rucks you obviously have before you turn it over, but then your kill percentage. So if you turn the ball over, the percentage of times you stop the opposition. Um, mm. And again, the the top teams were good at that, but surprisingly, we were really poor at that. Um, so right. we had a really poor percentage of when we turned it over. Did you capitalise? Stop the opposition. Oh, yeah. okay. Right. Not so, so oh, much stopping the when you gave it up. Yeah. On, on right. that turn. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's more attacking rough turnover ball. Um, mm. So that's something for me to look at you know, in this off season is. No, look at how how and why we're turning the ball over, uh, mm. but then again, what we did post that and what that resulted yeah. in. So it could be yeah. a part of our kicking game that we you know, might not have been highly effective at, or uh, part of our attack phase play or something like that. So from that bit of data, I can look into and and hopefully you know, it can be a focus point for for the program next year. So yeah, like you could talk all day about it, uh, and you can definitely go into rabbit holes of data and yeah, yeah. Look into things that. I think the big thing is, is is sort of having that knowledge of how it might influence how you want to play the game, but then also yeah. how it can influence the competition you're playing. And so uh, another example is in, in working for, with Terrace, we had all these competition averages, but then flipping over to Churchy this year, Churchy were very good attacking team, but didn't generally kick a lot. So my big focus this year was, to, to bring in more of a, a tactical exiting plan so then we can mm. play footy in, in better parts of the field and, and work, don't have to work as hard to, to score points. Um, so knowing that, yeah, we already had a good attack, I didn't have to really change too much. I could keep um, yeah. some consistency with what was already done. Um, but then, you know, knowing that, you know, kicking um, in, in all in all competitions, but, Kicking in in this competition that we play and isn't done very well. Yeah, we could get we could get a bit more bang for buck on focusing on that in our in our training program. No, it's fascinating stuff, and I I, I love it. I think it's and any coach can do it really. Depending on it doesn't matter what level you're at, you can do it yourself. Uh, you can get the players yeah. to do it. You can you can have an assistant coach take the lead on it. But you know, ultimately, it's got to be part of the solution uh it's got to align you you have your coaching philosophies first and then you from that and and the players that you have you create your game model and then you know having those stats that fit into that game model then makes your practice planning so much more efficient and effective um so you're not spending 15 minutes on stuff that you're actually already pretty good at and there's other stuff that you're 4% at that you should be spending a lot of time on. So, yeah, Yeah. there's loads of value there for sure. Cool. Um, All right. And um, you you mentioned in the introduction there uh, that you're you're with brothers, uh, just come off a a pretty successful stint with them. And, you know, one of of the things you said at the start of the show was uh, that you're you're with brothers and uh, you've got, coaching roles there with uh, with the first 15 as well and you've come off a successful stint. 
you know, in the lead up to this interview, you talked about one of the things was aligning some of the processes throughout the program and how how that was one of the one of the key components to the success. Can you talk a little bit about that and how, how that was done uh, with with that club in particular and and what that looked like? Yeah, so I was um, pretty lucky. The I, I come into Brothers at a uh, a really good point in terms of um, there's a lot of really good work already established with the program. Um, you know, they had a big focus of developing the cults over the last few years. Um, so we had you know, a number of graduating cults program going to grades, um, and there was some you know, consistency with with alignment to start with. But I guess you know, you, you look at the success we had. Like I think there was three years in a row where we won the club championship. We had. I think every team bar one, and that was first grade, I think, for two of the three years in the finals. So mm. we were going to grand final day. You'd have first to sixth grade in the grand final and Colts won wow. the Colts. Right? Like it, was, it was this awesome time. Um, but, you know, firstly, you got to have good players but good people, uh, which we, we had an abundance of and which made the, the alignment process so much easier. So I guess basically trying to make it as simple as possible is – Anything we did in the in the rugby program, uh, which includes on and off field, yeah, it was the same for a first grader to the sixth grader to the Colts four B player. So how we played, um, the style of play was you know, aligned throughout the club, and our first grade coaches would lead that. So whoever was um, the head coach, he'd obviously lead the the over, overview and over, oversight of it all in, in conjunction with myself, who would you know, be um, sending the messages down the line through all the, all the coaches uh, and all the grades. But then our you know, lead attack coach, lead defence coach, lead set-piece coach, they would lead that philosophy throughout the club. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the pre-season, those coaches would lead the full club pre-season. We'd do a full club. Anyone and everyone would come together for a six-week block before Chrissy. Uh, and then that would start to streamline as we progressed into the new, to new year into squads and teams. And then, um, yeah, those coaches in the lower grades or who'd be working with that, that would you know, work in with them, get to know the, the philosophy, get to know the principles behind it, get to know the methodology we wanted at training. Uh, and then they could go then start leading them with their teams and squads as we started mm. to, to narrow it down, which was awesome because what it did was in terms of coach development, it came quite easy. You know, we had a set style of play. Everyone was trying to do the same thing, the set terminology, it meant players were getting developed in the same way and then they could progress through the grades and through teams easily. So they weren't going to different teams with different nice. um, you know, game models and calls or anything like that. And the reality in club footy, you know, players play in different grades all the time. So mm. um, there's some real consistency with that, which meant players coming in, near the near attack patterns, near defence patterns, near the terminology, like it just added to the performance. Um I guess the other the other big one was the off field stuff. So we try to do everything as a club, team meetings. You know, we'd swap from the bottom field where the lower grades was on to the top field. Um, oh, yeah. sweet! Yeah, club barbecues. Uh, uh, yeah, swapping training fields so the, the top guys would go down the bottom. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. So mm. everyone in the club felt felt wanted and a part of it. And then we even had like. There was a thing called the Brothers Way, which I, I don't think any any of the players or probably hardly any of the coaches could tell you actually what it was. But um, <laughs> it was just basically a set of values, which is always the same: honesty, you know, respect, mm. all that sort of stuff. That you know we could preach in a way, but then also if there's any you know anyone stepping out of line, we could always revert back to 
to the brother's way on you know, what, what behaviours we want from people within the program. And you know, we're, we're doing an induction at the start of the year where any new player, they come in, they get a little bit of history of the club. You know, this is the brother's way, first grade captain would talk, one of the old boys would talk. So they get a, a real understanding of um, you know, what we're about. And then, yeah, it, it did have a big, a big influence on the off-field stuff. You know, the social side of things have become less problems. Yeah, you know, on the mm. beers after after the games, but they also really generate a really strong club culture. And if you have that, the, the footy side of things becomes a little bit easy as well. Yeah, it's definitely a, a way to keep a, a club moving forward and, and growing and retaining players and, and coaches and and making that environment. Uh, as fun and as cohesive as possible. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, last last one before we wrap things up, you're also the head coach of the Queensland Reds U18 team. That sounds like an awesome role. Can you tell me a little bit about what that role looks like, how much access you get to the players and what the competition looks like? Yeah, um, so very fortunate to yeah to lead that uh, Queensland Reds 18 Maroon team. So basically, I think it might have been three or so years ago, the pathway changed a little bit within Australian rugby. So it was traditionally right. Australian schools, which was run mm. by uh, the Schools Association Union. But then Rugby AU and Super Rugby franchises took ownership of that. And basically, it was it's now their responsibility to pick you know, Red 18 pathway players um, that usually go into academies. And then there's a, there's a number of uh, academy matches held throughout the year. So... In the first year we did it, we played um, Melbourne um, and then had two games against New South Wales. Uh, and then at the same time throughout the year, you know, the Force are playing Melbourne, the Brumbies are playing Melbourne, you know, Force are playing New South Wales. So right. what, what it does provide, provides an opportunity for obviously the academies of each um, Super Rugby franchise to play games for those guys that they have in that pathway to obviously showcase their, their skills and, and what they've learned within there their programs. Um, but then also that's where they pick the Australian 18s schools and you know, representative team from. So the first year we did it, we ended up with an unreal team and a majority, not a majority, a lot of them have gone on to play Super Rugby already. So guys like Josh Fluke, Zane Nongor, Mac Greeley, um, a few of the guys actually just gone down with the Rebel. Like, it, it was just a, a stacked team and that was the team that I uh, went over to New Zealand, the Australian 18 team, yes. uh, and beat New Zealand in New Zealand. Yep. Um, yep. Unfortunately, we uh, we haven't played a game since then because um, mm. of COVID, and it's kind of an unfortunate byproduct of um, obviously the, the crazy world we live in at the moment. Just from a, a rugby perspective, is these these young um, players haven't had the opportunity to you know, represent their state or country, uh, and hopefully that you know, will change next year's we potentially get back to the normality. But I guess the commitments other than games are based more around the academy. So from a coaching perspective, the, the lead coach at the moment, Dale Robinson, um, with the Reds Academy will lead that program. It's his role to, to develop that academy program. Um, and then myself will come in and, and assist that. And then as we sort of get closer to the game preparation, I, I take the lead on, on the team's preparation for that week with yeah, my assistant coaches. And then also with the, the white team, which is basically a second team. So we'd, we'd do our preps together and yeah, prepare together for upcoming games. I guess the the main thing we 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 try to achieve is is to provide a Reds experience for these mm. young players, so they get an opportunity to you know, experience what a professional preparation preparation week would look like, and also what they might look like within the Reds. So 
that first year we did it was pretty cool. Thorny come down, um, Jim McKay come down, Peter Ryan at that time, the defense coach come down, held some sessions, spoke to the boys. Um, we had players come down. They did a full professional training week. So they walk away that, firstly get the opportunity to represent their state, uh, hopefully win some footy games. Um, mm. But then also, you know, this is what it might look like you know, in the coming years if I, I continue to work hard and <clears throat> get the opportunity to be a professional footballer. That's awesome. Yeah, it must be a buzz uh, for the players and for the coaches as well. And, uh, yeah. you know, looking at looking at just going back to that, the, the alignment, the realignment of the of the U18s and, and the U20s for that fact, like it's, you know, it's, it's there's been some changes and it's starting to bear fruit and there's even some, you know, right now there's changes uh, at the super rugby level and, you know, a, a, a centralisation style model that's, got an Aussie flavour to it that's that's a bit more unique. So I, I think there's, uh, you know, it sounds like there's some awesome things happening there on the ground. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome to, to be involved. And when, yeah, involved with it, but also you know, when it's done well, it's it's um, it's a no-brainer in terms of, like, the benefits it has for the yeah. players and, you know, for the franchises and that sort of stuff as well. Uh, if we're all on the same page, it's, yeah, it's a lot easier to work towards. Yeah, yeah, 100%. All right, well, we always end the show with the same final four questions when you were a kid growing up in uh, in Queensland and Wally Lewis can't be your answer to any of these. Uh, who, who, was, uh, who was your favourite player that, that drew you into the game and, and got you excited? Um, I always remember my old man taking me out to Ballymore and sitting on the old grass hill that used to run along the um, grandstand, not the back hill. And watching Australia vs Ireland, and my favourite player was Keith Woods, um, oh, ball headed hooker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, really skillful player. Like I remember he changed the game. the game every now and then. Yeah, um, yeah. But also confrontational, uh, tough. Yeah, I used to love Keith Woods. Yeah, no, he changed the position for sure. No, he was, he yeah. was, he was amazing, uh, awesome. And what about now? Who are some of the players uh, you've mentioned a bunch in the interview? But who, who are some of the ones that you, you like uh, watching go around? Um, I think uh, Rico Ioni is just an absolute beast. Like when mm. when he uh, gets the ball, I don't think there's anyone like him in world rugby in terms of his athleticism and. Um, yeah, what he does with the opportunity he's provided within that All Blacks framework. But then there's another one where I love watching him play. I'm a big Otago fan, just the way they play footy and approach the game. Um, I think I got his first name wrong, but Viliami Karui. Right. Uh, I played a little bit with the All yeah, Blacks sevens sevens as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but awesome left foot boot. Uh, he's got variations in his game, great kicking game, great attacking game, um, works hard off the ball. He's not mm. just on his wing. Yeah, the way... He's utilised within that Otago system is awesome. Um, yeah, I, I love watching watching him play. So we've had someone from Ireland and two Kiwis. So I'm going to have to press you for an Aussie here. <laughs> Kenny Alatupu. Oh yeah, go past the what a pick! Yeah, he's got a little. <laughs> he's got the the little no look pass, the 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 bork. It's uh, it's all there, and he's a. Also, yeah, he's obviously got that, but he's um he's scrummaging next level. I always oh, remember going to a um a Wallaby session. And watching the scrummaging up close, and like his power, he's able to transfer when he wants mm. to. Like it's it's unbelievable. Like and to see it in real life, actually, you, you realise you know why he can just decimate scrums when he wants yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And uh, third question: What about coaches? Who's uh, who's a high profile coach that you like what they're doing? 
he'll probably get a bit of a big head from if he if he listens to this. But um, a guy called Ryan Martin, who's actually just signed on with the Rebels um, as their assistant coach. So oh, nice. another another Kiwi coach from Otago. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's um, he's a real innovative coach around the attack, um, but also how he ties in the tactical kicking game um, mm. to create better opportunities. Like I've, I've learned so much from him in the last couple of years. Um, and I'm actually really, really excited to see what he can do with the Rebels. Um, uh, I think uh, yeah, the Australian players, obviously, that part, that side of the game and part of the game are probably a little bit behind the, the Kiwis. Mm. So it'll be interesting Agreed. to see how much yeah. pro- progress he can make from the get-go. But, um, yeah, yeah, he's really innovative very attacking mindset, but also a really good, um, yeah, skills coach. Um, so yeah, he's, um, he's, he's a big one I'm looking forward to follow. Yeah. And that's interesting too, with like the, the changes you're seeing in the Wallabies under Dave Rennie, that, um, that would align really well with, uh, with what we're seeing there as well. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, final question. What about someone in the grassroots who's, uh, who's doing great work in your local community who deserves a shout out? It's probably uh, actually a guy called um, Damien Steele. So uh, he is a brother's old boy from the club I um, obviously was at previously and uh, did a lot of coaching in Portugal and also in New Zealand, but is now a director director of sport at a local private college um, in Brisbane. But he he leads the the, uh, row rig elite development program at Brothers, which is basically uh, you know, an academy that we run for our up-and-coming players. Yeah, and he's uh, – I don't think um, – because he hasn't been in the game within Brisbane for you know, an extended period of time because uh, he's been overseas, so not a lot of people will know him, but a really, really quality coach, um, good bloke, and you know, how he thinks about the game, how he communicates the players, he's you know, second to none. And, um, yeah, he's a real quality operator. All right, awesome. Great way to wrap it up. And um wanna thank you for your time for coming on the show, Ryan. It's been awesome. I love I love the chat about the leadership model that you're developing and, and how you're aligning data uh with with practice plans and and the competition that you're working in. And I think there's a, a bunch out there for for coaches to to apply to their sessions. So wanna thank you again for coming on the show and giving up your time. I appreciate again for having me. I really enjoyed chatting. All right. Perfect. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us via Twitter at RugbyCoachesCNR or via the website therugbycoachescorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.